there. This is the A Lot To Say podcast, a conversation-based project focused on unconventional career paths and the projects that consume us. I'm your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as many call me. And A Lot To Say is part of the Alts Project's family of content, uh, obsessing about the overlap between creativity, technology, and culture. I'm fortunate to spend my days working alongside technologists, artists, researchers, and people who just generally give a damn about the world we live in. And I'm very lucky to be able to hear of some incredible career journeys over that time from some really inspiring people. So I am particularly energized by the projects that I hear people are experimenting and tinkering on along the way. And I thought, you know what, it's time to put these stories out there with the A Lot To Say podcast project. I can't wait for you to hopefully discover some new and lesser known stories about the things people get wrapped up in and what led them to this point. This is A Lot To Say. Okay, welcome. It's episode 16 of A Lot To Say podcast, and I'm joined by Joel Connolly. He's the creative director for Blackbird Ventures. Our second guest uh, from Blackbird Ventures, actually, after Nick Crocker, who appeared in episode three, if I remember right. Um, but in regards to Joel, he's uh, he's had this really fascinating life and backstory um, and a, certainly a very, very unconventional career path going from the arts and theatre through to music management, running beer festivals, and um, eventually onwards into looking after community and then created direction for a financial services uh, group, which is, um, I, I guess, quite odd if you thought about it or saw it on paper, but um, as he explains, his crucial role within the within the group and makes so much sense. Um, it's, uh, it's probably the longest chat I've done as part of the podcast, to be honest, but I um, really, really enjoyed the conversation. We, t- we touched on a lot of concepts and specifically, you know, really, um, really wax lyrical around the concepts of community versus audience, um, engagement, um, activations, um, and, and just, you know, sort of le- really leaning into c- culture, culture in terms of what we consume and culture in terms of what we create and, you uh, it was, um, you know, just a, a really good chance to, you know, connect on a deeper level with someone and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And to cap it off, we'll, we'll also lean into some of his next steps professionally, um, which is around leaning into philanthropy and um, altruism as part of the Blackbird Foundation, um, which has been newly established and something that, you know, he sounds incredibly um, excited to lead. So uh, I can't wait for you to find out more about it through the chat now. So without further ado, this is episode 16 of A Lot To Say podcast with Joel Connolly. Joel Connolly, thank you for joining me for A Lot To Say. How's everything going? Gaz, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Everything's going good. We're moving towards the end of the year. It's 2020. It's been a weird and funny year, but I'm looking forward to a bit of a break. Yeah, for sure. Where's home? Where's home for you? So I'm in... Yeah, I'm in Orange, uh, so country New South Wales. It's about four hours west of Sydney. So if you imagine, um, I describe it as like the Napa, except a bit further away and higher up. So uh, <laughs> my house is close to a thousand meters above sea level. There's like it's a big wine region, so there's lots of you know crazy wine nerds out here. Yeah, um, and yeah, just it's like a regional city, country living. That's cool. Uh, look, what are some um, what are some sort of common misconceptions of of Orange? That you um that you sort of hear, I'd say the biggest one is probably that it's it's a country town. People always think the country; they think like quaint little village with like a corner store. Orange is a city; it's it's a regional city. So we have a huge, two huge hospitals here. We've got an airport. I can fly from, to Sydney 
Melbourne or Brisbane directly. Um, yeah. You know, there's the population's about 45,000, but when people come here, they're usually like, oh, you know, I guess it's this sleepy old place. And I'm like, no, you know, we've got hatted restaurants out here and, yeah, you know, it's like a proper city. It's just, it's just smaller. Do you have a seasonal sort of ebb and flow though? Like, do you notice a, um, uh, I guess I'm talking about specifically like whether it's Easter time or Christmas time, like, is there a large influx of visitors um, specifically at that time all of a sudden, um, uh, the locals are outnumbered or, or how does it sort of work? Yeah, good question and particularly relevant this year. So, um, you know, I know we don't want to talk too much about Corona and the year that it's been, but because people haven't been able to travel a lot this year, we've had like crazy tourism here. We always have quite a bit of tourism, um, but there's been a lot this year. There's been like, you know, McLarens parked in wineries and like all these people who are like, you know, normally we would go to Europe in our holidays, but we're coming to Orange instead. <laughs> but typically, <laughs> yeah, but typically Orange is quite a, like the seasons really define it. So winter is like super cold and like it snows here. We had, I reckon, 20 centimeters of snow one day last year. Like it was quite cold. Um, and then spring and autumn are both like beautiful in their own right. Um, you know, quite nice and mild, but still a bit cool. So people tend to come in spring and autumn. Summer's the only season that as a coastal boy uh, growing up on the coast, I'm definitely not accustomed to yet. It's like hot. It's historically, well, I've been here being dry because of the drought. There are like these flies that are the size of tennis balls. They're so big. Um, so, yeah, you see a lot of people coming to visit in spring and autumn, a little less in, in um, winter and summer's quite, it's, it's usually quiet in summer. So you mentioned coastal. So you, um, like how long have you, have you been in um, in Orange Four? But uh, where was um, home at some point um, in the past? And and were you were you um, were you actually residing within, um, say, Sydney CBD? I'm presuming at some point. Yeah. Also, well, I grew up my, the first my adolescence and childhood divided into two. So it was Darwin for the first half of my life, and then as a you know young primary school kid, um, moved to the Central Coast, New South Wales, to Copacabana which is this quaint little beach town about an hour and a half north of Sydney. And then I did spend about 10 years living in Sydney. We've been in Orange for about three years, though. So, look, thanks for that, Joel. And, look, I, I've, got, I've got you here for many specific reasons and, and broader reasons um, as part of the, the podcast chat. Uh, I mean, we've talked about a few of the, um, the possible talking points in advance, which is cool, um, and chatting about, I, I guess, some various notions we wanted to discuss, such as... Um, well, I guess if you're going to talk about community versus audience, um, talking about unconventional career paths, um, and, and that specifically leads me into sort of why I was um, pretty keen for you to get involved. I sort of, um, whilst we don't know each other uh, excessively well, I've sort of, um, we've interacted just just very briefly um, over email a few times, and I've always sort of been conscious and aware of what you've been doing um, professionally, but I was really interested to dive into it because um basically from what I can judge from afar, your sort of career path uh, very much fits into the mould of what I'm trying to highlight within the podcast interview series. Um, I would love to, that's a little vague um, in its association, but I'd love to talk about what you do right now um, in terms of a role at Blackbird, but then um, then we'll sort of take it on a sort of a non-linear journey through the things you've been wrapped up in um over the last few years. So mm. before I dive into those questions, let, let's go into what you do right now. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so, and, you know, I will say we haven't actually met in person, but I too have been aware of your work for quite some years and I've always admired your, like just how much organizing you actually do for community and in startups. So uh, it is a pleasure and a privilege to, to be here with you. Um, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Can't wait. To, uh, the first beer together is going to be, um, yeah, very oh, good. great. <laughs> we'll make it a young Henry's. Um, okay. So what do I do now? I'm currently the creative director of Blackbird Ventures, and I'm also the head of the Blackbird Foundation, which is our philanthropic arm. Um, creative director, I'll be totally, like, these are two new roles for me. I've been doing these for maybe five or six months. I've been doing the work that I guess makes up the roles for, for a number of years, but yeah. I've, I've officially had the roles for about six months now. Um, and prior to that, I ran, I built Blackbird's community and I ran um, community strategy for Blackbird, plus a whole bunch of other things, but I, I was doing that for about five years. Cool. Creative director at a financial services company is a weird thing. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'm still working it out. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the mission is to like infuse creativity uh, into all the aspects of, you know, a venture capital firm that you might not necessarily consider you need to. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, I'm on a journey to work out what that is, but I can give you some examples later on if you yeah, like. Yeah, love to. And and for those who are unaware or, um, well, I guess coming to terms with uh, what a venture capital sort of um, is or, or what, what, what the role or place of um, Blackbird within the technology ecosystem is specifically. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown? And I'll reference a little bit. Um, I saw you tweet in the past about, I think you had something to promote and it may have been the foundation or a job, uh, but you'd, you'd mentioned in your tweet, um, I never even knew what an Atlassian was. Um, and now I've you know found my mm. way into doing this type of role. So do you want to explain a little bit about what Blackbird does, the type of, type of companies that, um, you work with sort of day to day and then how that translates into, um, yeah, home, we'll home back in onto what your day to day role is. Yeah. All right. Well, so I, you know, I come from the arts, right. And so to me, venture capital, when I first discovered it was like this, like revelation, it was this bizarro kind of world where you could have an idea to start some kind of business literally an idea like you could just be at the beginning of the journey of creating something and you could find these people who would give you all the money you needed for the first year or two of that and then you know if you succeed in that first year or two they continue on and will keep giving you money so like venture capital is basically that yeah if you have a it's usually a startup or a technology business if you have an idea for something and you want to build, um, you know, solve some kind of big problem, but you want to begin and you need money to pay yourself, money to hire other people, money to start, we will come in and give you that money. And in exchange, it's not like a debt that you owe us. It's in exchange for equity. So I'm explaining this just like as if I was explaining it to myself five years ago because I didn't know what yep. any of this stuff was. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like for equity, it's just a percentage of your business. And the magic of that is that if your business doesn't work out as a founder, you don't have this debt hanging over your head that you have to spend the next 20 years of your life trying to pay back. It's mm -hmm. equity. So it just simply means it's a percentage of your business. And if your business goes to zero, it means the percentage that we own goes to zero. And that's it. We shake your hand and high five you. Of course, we hope that's not what happens. And we hope you are wildly successful and we want to give you more and more money. It's like this crazy thing where you know, the more successful you get, the more excited we get and the more money we want to give you to do what you want to do. Uh, I don't know if that was an unclear explanation, but that to me is like, that's the essence of venture capital.
No, no, it, it, it makes perfect sense. I, obviously, I've been embedded uh, within it, but I'm also conscious of, um, you know, not, uh, you know, when running these interviews or having the discussions, not uh, also asking questions in my own sort of echo chamber, you know what I mean? Um, but also within the venture capital or sort of technology um, ecosystem when funding um, or fundraising is involved, obviously a larger proportion or density of failure would exist within the um, the industry. Did you want to talk a little bit about that, about what you've sort of been exposed to, um, not so much specific businesses that have fallen over, but um, how you got your head around that as you moved into um, this new and uh, unclear world? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's sort of funny, like the notion of failure is even, I even think that's incorrect. So it's true to say that as venture capitalists, like from our perspective as investors, the investing we do is very high risk. So we'll invest out of one fund. So one pool of money, we'll invest in 20 to 25, 26 companies. We don't expect many of them to give us back our money. We, when we make the investment we do, we like have full 100% conviction that the company we're investing in right now is going to go on, be like multi-billion dollar things, going to take over the world, blah, blah, blah. But the reality of it is that most of them won't. Um, but just even that concept there where you mentioned failure is like, like even if one of those companies doesn't work out, it's like you've, it doesn't even feel like failure. You know, you had a try at something and it might not have worked for a bunch of different reasons. Like you might've just been wrong about an assumption or a market or a problem. You know, you might've yeah. had the timing incorrect, but like even the idea that you fail is just seems like bizarro to me. Cause you just like it, it that kind of makes it this dichotomy, like you either succeed or you fail. But the reality is a founder who starts a business and let's say that business doesn't work out, they grow in all kinds of different ways. Their networks grow, their experience grow, their value, their social capital, everything grows as a result of having a crack at starting a business. Yeah. So, yeah, it's different. Like, you know, the, again, the world I used to come from, the arts, it's like, you know, I guess the difference, it's actually no difference. It's the same thing. Like even if you started a band business and you start managing bands and you work with a band for a year and that band gets, I don't know, 200 fans, it's still, you know, relative to the music industry when there are thousands of, you know, you need millions of fans to be Taylor Swift. Those yeah. 200 people are still 200 people who have listened to music and gotten some from it. So I just don't see like, I just don't see that, you know, if you're willing to have a crack at something that you can fail, I don't think that's a thing. Yeah, no, fair and fair sentiment. Look, um, no, thanks for explaining it. And we'll, we'll probably touch upon some of those concepts a little bit more. It may, may even be in a, um, a personal um, circumstance that you reference. But for the, um, for the interview and the podcast purposes, this is very much about you, the individual. So I'm going to like completely flip it with that um, sort of venture capital context in mind. Um, and talk about where you've sort of come from um, before this. So uh, I'll broadly say what I know about what you've been doing. So you used to manage bands and you've run beer festivals, et cetera. And now you're in venture capital investment in a creative capacity. Where, where was the moment that it flipped for you? And maybe give us the, the rundown of what's been happening in the years prior. Um, sure. So do you want me to, I can go back to, I'll go back to prior to, to bands. If you like, we can start there. And... Yeah, let's go to prior, but I'm, I'm definitely keen to sort of understand about where, where the, whether there was a, a chance encounter or, or a moment that sort of um, opened up this opportunity for you to move into this completely mm. new new world. Yeah, well, you know, at the time, so when I was I was 
in this transition phase, I will call it a liminal phase in between my work in the arts, so managing bands, running beer festival, through to venture capital. Um, at the time, the thing that flipped the switch and that got me into VC was literally just a meeting um, and an introduction. So a good friend of mine who runs a startup called Quilla, his name's Dylan Baskind, he was in the he was in bands before and I knew him. I taught him in a class at Sydney Uni and, you know, we were friendly while he was in bands and I knew his manager and he went on to create this startup, which is now killing it. Like they've got, I think they're up to their series. They've done the series A, they've got like a hundred employees now, something like that. Anyway, he introduced me to Nikki Savak, who's the founder of Blackbird. And at the time I was just, I didn't quite know what I was asking Dylan for. I just said, you know, a, like I need, like I need to think about what's beyond music, but then also we have this immediate problem in our business, the music business where we just need some income. And, you know, I, I just, I'd, intru- I'd appreciate an introduction to someone who knows people in startups. Um, and so he introduced me to Nikki. I had a coffee meeting with Nikki. Um, you know, originally it was, they run this, like Blackbird was running this conference called Sunrise. And originally I was saying, umbrella my business we could help you run sunrise and then that flipped nikki was like well i was also going to introduce you some startups but i'm not going to do that now i think you should come run sunrise for us uh which is like i mentioned a technology conference and if you run that um you know great you can have a role but what it ended i thought at first i was pitching umbrella to him and we had that discussion he's like actually no we want you to actually just come and work here um, and then the idea, was- <laughs> and also may I say, like, if you're gonna if you're gonna be introduced to someone in, uh, I guess, the startup industry in Australia, it, it ain't it ain't the worst oh, place mate, to start. It was like, <laughs> like to literally the best it. introduction, and not just not just in that you know, Nikki's kind of you know he's a really great investor, he's got a great reputation, and he's um, you know you know I you know knows all the startups right, like he knows everybody, so. On that, in that sense, it's like a really great introduction. But also, I don't think there are many other people who straight off the bat would have given me a shot like he did. Um, you know, he he always talks about magic and seeing magic in people. And I, I just don't think people see magic in quite the same way he does. And I'm not saying that I've necessarily got magic, but mm. I don't think I could have met anybody else in investing in Australia and ended up where I am now. Um, so there's that like chance meeting. Um, and that's the thing that you think at the time, like, I'm so lucky to have this introduction and I'm so grateful to Dylan for doing it and how fortunate that, you know, I just happened to have that coffee on that day with that person. But then, you know, on reflection, when you look back, I actually realized I was working towards it my whole life and towards the work that I do at Blackbird, I've been setting myself up for, for the past like 15 years. And so, you know, I think it's Steve Jobs said in this commencement speech, but it's really easy to draw the dots, you know, to connect the dots when you're looking backwards. Um, But looking forwards, it's impossible. Like I could never have known that, you know, when I was running a music festival at Bathurst, you know, at a university, that would have played a role in me getting towards Blackbird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you mentioned, um, we'll come back to some of these concepts specifically, um, yeah, talking about that linear or non-linear sort of pathway. Um, so what came first mm. out of, uh, say managing bands and if you wanted to reference who you had actually managed or, um, working on sort of festivals prior to, um, prior to your entry into the technology ecosystem? Mm. 
Um, well, you want to go back to high school? I can go back to high school for you. <laughs> I would love like. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> right. do it. So I was, um, I went to Kingcumber High on the Central Coast. Um, and it's this, it's like a cool high school. It's near the beach. Um, you know, most, it's, you know, pretty just blue collar, um, straightforward. And I, I don't know, I just didn't, I had a, like everybody, you know, heaps of people have a little bit of a, you know, traumatic time in high school. And I had a little bit of a traumatic one just in that, you know, kids didn't like me that much. But so what I found was that in music, I became this huge music fan. And I found that within music, I could, you know, take on uh, some of the identity, like it really began to inform my identity. And I could take on some of the characteristics of the bands that I really love. And I could use those things to create an identity that was separate from what people were telling me I was. Um, And so I really fell in love with music, became a huge like music fan, just barreled right into it. And I had these two bands that I really loved. One was Tool, and that's the cooler version of it. And then the yep. other band was pa- was Powderfinger. Yep. And this huge Powderfinger fan. And I joined, this is the beginning of organizing in the arts and organizing around things that I care about. I joined the fan club called the Econodogs um, for Powderfinger. And essentially we were just these like internet, like the internet was just becoming a thing forums were just like this was the social media of the time powderfinger had this forum on their website um that we all used to hang out on i helped build a website like a fan website we had all these guitar tabs up there and all these crazy things i made like you know these people became my friends uh, but we never saw each other we were all over the country um but they became really good you know friends of mine um And, you know, I did this one thing one time where we were, you know, we'd go to shows and no one would know how to recognize each other because we only knew each other on the internet. And this was before avatars and photos, like no one had a photo of themselves next to their profile, right? So I made us these t-shirts that said the Econodogs and I sent them to everybody um, so that at shows we would recognize each other. And I sent them to the band as well. And I'll never forget it. uh, Cogsy, who's the drummer, John Coghill, wore this t-shirt out on stage um, at the animal <laughs> theater. And so I was with all my kind of dog mates and we were up the front. Like we were the kids that hold on to the bar at the front, right? Like we get there yeah. hours in advance just to get that front spot. And we were all there wearing our t-shirts and he's up on stage. Like, and he comes out with that t-shirt on and I just flipped out. Like it was so exciting. Um, anyway, so that was like the first, I think in my memory, I was like, when I was thinking about this and I saw some of the questions just sent over, I was trying to think about, when the first thing I did was what my first encounter with organizing in the arts and organizing music was. And that was it. Yeah. That's um, a cool story. How many people existed within this micro community that you'd um, sort of curated the, the Econodogs? Econodogs. So I'll give you the history on the name. It was named after an Econovan. Powderfinger used to drive uh, this Econovan around the country to tour. Yeah. And they, it was such a shit van. They called it the Econodog. Anyway. Um, <laughs> There might have been only like, a true fan would know. Like you're, you're like <laughs> you're getting the most most niche invested um, super fan out there. Like just drawing them to this um, yeah. super fan forum. Well, it was also a really great lesson in community building for me because for sure. these guys, yeah. you know, Powderfinger used to, if you look on all the liner notes of their records, they would thank the Econodogs every time. Every time they get on stage and win like 20 Arias in a year, 
they would get up and thank the Econodogs. And it was sort of like I realized that they, like looking back, what I realized is that they went from, you know, this audience, a group of fans, and within that we had created a community. They didn't do it. They just supported and encouraged it. Um, but anyway, so, you know, there must have been like 150 people, I think, in the group, but maybe like 30 really active people who, you know, we were at everything on the forums every day, like, you know, doing the work to actually make the group successful. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I, I can't um, I can't quite see on the flip side Maynard James Keenan from Tool, like, you know, no. wearing the T-shirt out for your, like, separate uh, – super fan tool forum but um but i can definitely i can definitely see like it's it's such a cool story in the powder finger context that they sort of took that on and really um it must have been super inspiring and just like really invigorating for you to sort of obviously because you're getting this um i, I guess you're getting this res, res, reciprocity coming back to you which is sort of feeding the motivation to hone in more and more on those sort of like community building aspects yeah, it's self-fulfilling. Like now that I know about community building, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's obvious to me, but you know, we, we, we all had this like shared identity, right. In that we were fans of this band and we all, you know, our, we had shared aims, which was to learn more about the band and to get closer to them and to get like, you know, like, like demo songs sent out to us. Like I remember they sent out, um, not my kind of scene to us as a demo, which was this huge song for them that was on the Mission Impossible soundtrack. And yeah. we hated it. Like we gave them so much shit about it. And they didn't like, they still, obviously it was, they were just giving it the song to us just, just to make us feel good because they didn't pull it or anything. It went on to become one of the biggest songs they've ever had. Uh, but you know, you, you want like something from the band back. You want to feel closer to them and then you want to experience that with a group of people. And you know, like, I think that's like the essence of it. Like, and it was magic for me. It kind of led me on to everything else. Like it, um, you know, after high school, I, I didn't get straight into uni cause I had a terrible UAI. I think I got like 50. Um, yeah. and so I had to wait to become a mature age student, um, which was cool. I did a TAFE course on web design after that. Um, then it ended up eventually getting into this degree, this magic degree called theater media. It was a bachelor of communications in theater media. Most people won't know it, but if you know, you know, um, it's basically in Bathurst and it was this just the most incredible experience. It was three years of, I, I'll tell you the, probably the best way is to tell you a story of the initiation, how you come into the degree. And then that will lead to more on the questions that you're asking around organizing and community. So yeah, right. it's part of the communication strand. So you, you, you work alongside people in advertising, PR, journalism, radio, and our little sub strand or major was called theater media. And you arrive at the university and you arrive in O week in Bathurst in country, New South Wales. And O week's what it is. Like it's a lot of fun. You're hanging out in dorms. You go into the uni bar a lot. Uh, and then you start your classes for theatre media. And the very first thing you're told is that at the end of the term, you're going to go on this bushwalk. It's going to take you two days to do the walk. Um, you're going to end up at this historic gold mining town called Hilland. Uh, and I can tell this, by the way, because the, the Hilland walk doesn't happen anymore. So I'm not ruining it for anyone who's a potential <laughs> candidate for theatre media. Uh, but enough. essentially, yeah. like, 
<laughs> you go and they say to you, okay, so you're going to go in groups. Um, and each group you have, you basically have to organize yourself. Someone's got to figure out a first aid certificate. Someone's got to work out the meals. Someone has to figure out the shelter. And so you're going to come together and you're going to organize this thing together. So you have this project to do and you are each relying on each other uh, and you're each going to bring your own flavor to it. Anyway, so the day comes around, you like get put on this mini bus with like the, I guess like five people in your group and they send you off. They drive you out to, I guess, near Sefala, which is again in, in country New South Wales. And you set off on this walk and all they've told you is you've got to prepare one joke, one story and one song. And it's like not an easy walk. It's, it's on a bridal track. So it's not, it's not like a bush walk, but it's, it's not easy for a bunch of arts kids, right? Like we're not necessarily the fittest people going around. And you get through this whole day and it's the middle of summer and it's hot and someone's been lugging water and you've got these huge big backpacks with everything you need on them. And as you get towards the end of the first day, um, you're in the middle of nowhere in this bush and you start to see like these weird signs of life, like maybe a lantern in a tree um, or maybe some like, you know, a sign up somewhere that's, that looks out of place. And eventually you're around this corner and this whole like team of people, like maybe eight people come out of the bush, all dressed up like in this crazy theater outfits. Um, like looking like real hippies, frankly, they take the bags from your shoulders. They give you a cold beer. They walk you across this river where across the river, they've set up a camp for you. They prepared food. They give you shoulder rubs. You spend the night singing and dancing and doing this like ceremonial things. These are the kids in third year of your degree. So they have already been through the walk themselves two years prior. And this is the year that they, that they host you. And so that first night is just such a, like the first thing that you realize is that you're, you're part of something a little bit bigger and that people who have done this degree, who are years above you have taken the time to help you and to prepare you for the rest of this walk. Anyway, so it's super special. You feel really bonded after it and you continue on the next day walk, walk, walk all the way. And then what happens is you end up getting to, like you start to see all these other people around, like these crazy, like dressed up weird characters all through the Australian bush. You have these minor encounters with each of them and you move on. And you end up at the end of the day, you get to this big pub. Uh, it's this historic pub, it's called the Hillend Pub. It's absolutely beautiful. And at that pub, uh, all the second year students, they prepare this medieval style feast for you. And then all the alumni from the degree, people who graduated 20 years ago are waiting at the pub for you. And they like, you know, they applaud you. You run through these like, you know, tunnels of people. You are given food, like your feet are massaged and cleaned. And you have this big, like, again, like medieval style, like festival event that night where everyone's prepared performances for you, where you realize that actually this degree goes back 20 years and you're 30 years and you're part of something so much bigger than just the little class that you come in on. Um, mm. And that was the initiation into the whole degree. I don't think many people have had a, a first few weeks of university similar to that. That's incredible. It's like a positive hazing um, experience. Yeah. Um, but amazing to hear that they have these sort of like rituals um, and annual rituals for, I guess, progressively, um, whichever stage of the um of the of the course you're in that's that's an incredible yeah. experience well this is where i learned about like liminal space and rituals and ceremony and and culture and community like this is all this degree taught me everything like it gave me the foundations for everything that 
all the value that I've been able to add to Blackbird. Um, and again, remembering I'm in the financial services industry. Most people have law degrees or accounting degrees or commerce degrees. Um, they've worked at like investment banks and what have you. Um, you know, it's hard at first to understand or see how someone from, you know, the arts or from, you know, a creative person could have a meaningful impact, but, you know, we'll get to it. I'm, I think, but essentially, you know, all the things that I've been able to add that add value to Blackbird that make me different to everybody else all like began and started with this degree that I did. Um, let's, um, let's jump forward a little bit. I would love to talk about the sunrise, um, what you've been doing uh, and we'll reference it a little bit and then go back to the story. So rather than address mm. it in, in full. Um, so you've, you've taken aspects of those, um, I guess those are uh, thoughtful and meaningful experiences as part of your course, obviously like they're the early initial exposure to um, yeah, something a bit more curated and you sort of embedded them in uh, business technology conferences. Is that what you're referencing? Yeah, yeah, totally. So we tried to, the Sunrise is a, is a technology, for those that don't know, it's a technology conference where we, um, you know, bring together founders, tell their stories uh, to a whole bunch of people who we hope someday would want to work in technology. Um, the idea is that when it was initially started, the idea behind Sunrise was that people didn't, they knew the stories of our best athletes, of our actors, they knew the stories of, you know, politicians and all kinds of different Australians, but there were all these amazing things happening, um, you know, in startups and technology and no one knew those stories. So that was the initial idea. And yep. what I've tried to do over the years with Sunrise is, I guess, make it more like an arts festival, and uh, like a crossover between an arts and a technology conference. And the reason behind that is, Gaz, I'm sure you've been to a whole bunch of like conferences. They're all pretty yep. the same right like yeah, but when you go to an experience like a conference or a concert or a festival and you have a really deep experience and it's impactful and it's really special you know it and frankly none of the startup or tech conferences i've been to are like that and if they are it's not their fault it's by it's you know not intentional it's i've accidentally met people and we've gone off to do something outside of the conference Anyway, so I tried to bring in a whole bunch of different stuff to uh, like replicate some of those great experiences that I've had in my life. And that's, you know, like I guess the biggest year that we did it was on Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbour. You know, we had these ideas around how people would arrive. And so the conference itself was meant to be this liminal space, so this in-between zone where you have like you've left your previous world um, and you are transitioning to a new world, to a new life. So the life before you decided to do something impactful with your life, you've made the decision to leave that. And on the other, sunrise is the liminal space, the middle. And on the other side of sunrise, you'll begin anew, like your life as an entrepreneur or someone who wants to solve a big problem or do something important with their life. On the other side of sunrise is when it's supposed to begin. And so we built in a whole bunch of these, uh, like, I guess you call them rituals and ceremonial things. So for the boat ride over, like we tread, we treated the ferry ride as like the journey to the island is a special part of that. So we had performers and people delivering like monologues and, and different things like that on the boat. Then when you get to the island, you land and you don't quite see the, the space where most of the conference will happen yet. Um, you have to go through this, transitional period to get there and that was this the form of this big tunnel that that is on cockatoo island that burrows through the rock 
So you go from one side of the island all the way to the other side of the island through this rock tunnel. And we had like lighting and performance in there to try and like make the space, um, like make it like a transitional space. So you're actually, you know, you, you are arriving and entering, you know, your, your time at sunrise. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side of that, you know, throughout the day, we try and like, we have the, you have to have the usual stuff that people expect. Like you have to have some conference speakers and workshops and things like that, because I just don't, my view is the audience, you have to warm them up. Like you can't just flip from a technology conference to an arts thing in one year. Like you have to take some time with it. And so we had all of those things, but to try and like shake people out of the usual experience that they're used to having a, like the environment we thought was quite impactful. It's Cockatoo Island with this big old industrial, you know, shipbuilding, um, you know, facilities and, um, you know, this sandstone and steel and like, that's not usually what you would expect to see. But then we also had like roving performers. We had like musicians on throughout the day. We had, um, weird like science labs that you could go and take part in. Like we, you know, we put a lot of effort into trying to curate micro experiences that wouldn't, you wouldn't normally expect to see at a normal technology conference. Very cool. And how is this received? <laughs> like, I mean, I'm really curious um, to, oh, like, when you sort of received either, either directly in person from people or via, um, I'm presuming some sort of a feedback mechanism via email, et cetera. What was the feedback that came back to you? From people yeah. who were not not used to being well, exposed. Uh, sorry, that's a bit of a generalization. Um, rather than presume that people haven't been exposed to arts and culture institutions, I mean more in a in a business conference setting. Mm. So this is quite a joke and a bit controversial at Blackbird. Um, but <laughs> so previous years, I we NPS people, we do surveys afterwards. You know, I got like 68 NPS, 67, 66. So quite high for a large scale event. Like yeah. when you think about what NPS is about, it's a net promoter score. It measures the overall experience a person has. So, um, you know, all kinds of things can bring an experience down for an individual person. Like they might have to wait too long for a coffee or the person they sat behind in the theater might be, you know, seven foot tall. Like there's all kinds of things that you, as an event producer, you just like, it's really hard to get a handle on everything. But anyway, the scores previously were quite high. The score for Sunrise North Island was the lowest I've ever got. I think it was like 38. Um, but the anecdotal New feed, Zealand? it's, was no, that New sorry, Zealand? So, sorry, Sunrise, I'm sorry. I misspoke Sunrise Island. So there was oh, Sunrise, yeah. Sunrise, then there was Sunrise Island or Cockatoo Island and then Sunrise North Island in New Zealand. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, so the Cockatoo Island one got 38 and that was like shocking to everybody because we'd done so well previously and Sunrise Island nearly killed me. Like I was, I organized most of it on my own. I had a really small crew of people helping me and you should never, ever try and attempt that. It's too big an event to do on your own. So it nearly killed me and then the score was low. And Blackbird's very, like, we measure everything. We're very metrics driven. Mm -hmm. uh, so the score was low, but I had people coming up and telling me that it was the best thing that they've ever been to. Like, I had a friend of mine, Alan Jones, come up to me afterwards and go, this is literally the best conference I've ever been to. And there was a lot that went wrong on the day. Like, for example, the lunch, like, we had, a, we had to redo our whole catering plan a week out. Um, for reasons I won't go into, but we had all these things booked and we had to find a caterer, a new caterer who could do everything. And so, you know, we had these big lines for food that, 
you know, and people getting really hungry at 11 o'clock instead of 12.30, like I had planned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so lots of little things, where, lots of audio issues on the day. Like I had this one idea where we would have speakers all around the island and we would have the year being repeated. So uh, essentially it would go, the year is 2015. Pause year is 2016 and it would repeat all throughout the day up until the end and it gets to like the year is like i don't know 20 like 21 or, or whatever um and you know people would get this sense that time is is fleeting and that you know if you don't move quickly that it just passes by and you're at a point in your life where you you should be able to go and get started on something those plans that you have Anyway, that sounds like totally messed up. And there were people trying to give speeches on, on stages with the sound going over the top of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so there were like lots of little things that went wrong, but I think the overall experience was better than any other conference I've been to in Australia, technology conference. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm, I'm mixed on how it was received. I think it was received well, but our NPS score would say otherwise. It's always a massive gulp. Um, it's fine to have like MPS, uh, I guess, is manageable in a workshop context, obviously, because you've got a small group, um, you know, whoever's running that vibe, like are able to like inject, you know, they're, I, I guess able to personally manage the expectations of the people in the room, but uh, very hard in a large event context. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think the, the trust metric or measure of sentiment um, throughout the room. Mm, I don't think that NPS is a good measure for large scale events. I, you know, I don't know what's a better measure, and that's the problem. Like, I, I don't think I could ever, you know, I, if I knew something better, I would just use it. But I think NPS is a poor um, metric for a large scale event like that. So I've jumped over to the Sunrise um, delivery and production, but we were um, discussing previously, um, we were sort of digging more into your um, your career journey. So did you want to go back? Because we haven't even touched upon the parts yeah. of yourself um, managing bands. And then I, I guess the um, the progression from the um, the course that you were talking about is such a formative, um, massive influence in your life. Yeah, yeah, totally. So after I graduated, I came to Sydney and moved to Sydney and I did a few different things while I was here. I worked at first for Sydney Festival and, you know, did a few odd jobs for music festivals. Um, but then I ended up getting a job in local government running like as an events assistant. So I was helping to run local government events. And I did that in two different councils and like I was pretty, I don't think I was very good at it in the end because I was really bored by it. Um, like I didn't realize at the time, but, you know, I'd always see myself as an arts organizer, but I actually feel like I'm more creative than that. But at the time I was, you know, I was like running spreadsheets for 150 storeholders and taking all their preferences, like what kind of power they need, how much space, like what they're selling. And I was entering all of that from paper forms into manual spreadsheets. And so it wasn't like, yeah. you know, I still think it was like, it was a good job. It was honest work, but it was, I don't think it was that interesting to me. And I kind of faded out from it, but right. As I was starting to get disinterested, I started to look for things that were more interesting to me. And I just moved to Sydney and there was this radio station called FBI, which is like this community radio station, like two SCR in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, sorry, not two SCR. Triple R. Uh, triple yeah. R. Um, Anyway, I got super into music again uh, and I um, 
started looking around for ways to get involved in music. And I met this band on MySpace at the time and they asked if I would help them. They were called Wallspace and I didn't know what that was. So I went and hooked up with my friend Greg who was managing a band at the time and he gave me the lowdown. Uh, anyway, long story short, he and I decided to um, start working together and pick up some bands together. And at the time, we didn't know it was management. We had no idea what we were doing. We just knew we wanted to help bands. We knew that we weren't artists ourselves. We weren't, you know, able to create stuff ourselves, but we really loved music and we wanted to help them. So we started helping this band called Le Kingst, uh, who, not The Kinks, but Le Kingst. Um, yep. Anyway, still, I think one of the best, most brilliant bands that we ever managed that sadly never went anywhere. Um, but we started working with them together and then we picked up this other band called cloud control. Uh, and then, you know, we started from there taking it a lot more seriously. We realized we were managers and not, we thought we might be a record label at first. Um, but you know, we ended up realizing it's actually management that we were doing. And so we, we leaned right into that. And I eventually, um, you know, as we got more into it, decided that I needed to quit my day job because I was still doing my day job at the time and just managing bands at every hour that I wasn't, you know, at council doing events work. Um, <laughs> so I had this idea. I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to quit my council work so that I can do bands full time. And there's this scheme that a Centrelink offers where you can like go on. It's kind of like the doll, but it's different. It's for people who are starting their own businesses. So you don't have to, you can go on the doll, but you don't have to go and look for work every week if you can show that you're running, that you're trying to start your own business. So essentially it's like seed funding from the government to start a company. Um, and anyway, so I quit this, I quit my council job and I didn't realize at the time that you couldn't quit your job and then go and get on this scheme. So I went into Centrelink and said, Hey, I've, I've like left my work. Um, can I get on this scheme now? And they're like, oh no, you got to wait three months. Like you, you can't quit your job and then just get benefits straight away. And I was like, okay. So I got all these other jobs. I got a job at the Apple store. I got a job working in a tennis court. I did all kinds of like little bits and pieces here and there so that I could do the bands full time. Um, anyway, so cloud control started to take off and that was really exciting. And we signed this deal with this um, UK label called infectious. We'd already signed a deal in Australia to a, bit, a label called Ivy league. Um, and so it actually started to take off. Like it felt like it was actually happening. Um, and you know, so you're headlining shows in 400 cap venues, like you go into the corner or you go into Oxford art factory or, um, and the thing about music is that you can see immediately the impact of your work when you go to your band show. And so you get this huge kick from it. Yeah. So it's not like other many jobs. You don't ever get to, you don't ever get that kind of dopamine hit, but when you're managing bands, you spend all days like negotiating things and organizing stuff. And then you go to a show and you see that the impact of your work. Um, yeah. It's not just the people in the room, right? It's like they're flooding the, um, flooding the merch desk or maybe the, the bars heaving a bit more or, um, or, and then obviously that intangible thing, like feel the energy in the room. Like you just, yeah. um, just feel it. They're singing lyrics. They're singing the lyrics to the songs that you know really well, that you were as a manager hearing when they were just acoustic demos. And all of a sudden these songs are coming to life. They're on stage. You can see the band performing and you can see the impact that they're having, uh, on the audience. Uh, anyway, so it was super, I absolutely loved it. Um, we ended up picking up some other bands through this time. Like we, I managed, eventually managed the Rubens and a band called Fishing. There's this like electronic duo and 
you know, a band called Winterborn and all these other acts. And, you know, we really fell into like, okay, we are managers. This is my identity. This is who I am. And so we were, it was like an incredible way to spend my twenties. We were like traveling all over the world to go to concerts and festivals and conferences. Like I, I went to South by Southwest just about every year for like five years. You know, you have, I remember my first lanyard that I ever got to a festival. And as a music fan, when you get your first lanyard and you can go backstage <laughs> and hang out with bands, it's like the most incredible feeling. And the bands, it turns in the end, like, you know, after you've been in the game for like eight years, all the bands are your friends. Even if you're not managing them, you know everybody. Um, so it's this incredible community and, you know, a really great way to spend my 20s. Um, but, you know, it's also quite a difficult business in that it's cyclical. So um, you, like your bands will be earning money for 18 to 24 months and then they stop earning money for six to 12 months. And so you have to have a whole roster of acts and you have to be really good about managing your money. Um, and so we, we took on other things to try and, um, you know, make the business more consistent. So we started running events and festivals. The biggest one that I, I think I did was um, Sydney Craft Beer Week. So I ran Sydney Craft Beer Week, which was this big craft beer festival. We had like 130 events in a week. Um, we had that. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was pretty nuts. Um, I had that for... I think five, six years I did it and all because like it was the story of my journey into business is one where you actually have no idea what you're getting into. You don't know anything about the business or the industry itself, but you really love the thing. So I didn't know anything about the music yeah. industry, but I really love music. I didn't know anything about the craft beer world, but I really love craft beer. And when I came back to, I fell in love with it in the US on this road trip. And when we came back to Australia, there wasn't any craft beer in Sydney. And so that's why I decided to, you know, do this festival and try and change that. Um, and obviously I think it was just the right timing. Like I, I can't claim credit for changing the category or anything like that, but you can go into Sydney now and get a good beer anywhere. Um, and that was, you know, so I was part of the group of people that was organizing that. Um, but yeah, so we did that. We ran events like um, Sydney Craft Beer Week. We also ran one for Young Henry's called Small World, um, which is like a music festival. Um, and yeah, all of this was going well until it wasn't. And then that's, you know, kind of, I guess, where Blackbird begins. It's really interesting as well. You've highlighted a few things and I'm, um, I'm obviously seeing, and hopefully, you know, if people are listening, um, they may have had similar experiences, but you're, you're sort of, you're referencing, um, so you're managing band, like you're not a musician yourself, but you're managing the bands, you're involved in the, the process or the industry because you genuinely love it. Or even referencing back to your time in the sort of, um, you know, Powderfinger, a Connor dog. Yeah, mm. a Connor dog for So you're, you're involved in the music industry while not being a musician yourself, but you're still like very involved and in managing to surround yourself with these people. And then the same thing has happened within the um, the craft beer space. You're not a you're not a brewer yourself per se, but you're you're heavily immersed in the scene and um, with mm. something that you're genuinely passionate about. And you're doing it again. You're, you're not specifically a um, you know from finance or fintech background, and yet you're immersed like within this mm. world and being exposed to high technology companies. It's it's, it's really like it makes so much sense to see your path now in hindsight just like you referenced with the um the steve jobs analogy but um it's it's almost cool to look back on it mm. at this stage and see those sort of steps in your life yeah well it's sort of funny that you put it like that because i've been thinking about this recently 
kind of sounds like I just can't do any of the things that I love. So (laughs) so I like get involved. But what I think it actually is, is that I've, I think to be an artist, to be like a musician, for example, you have to, that's your thing. You have to become an expert at it. To be a brewer, that's your thing. You have to be an expert at being a brewer and you're committing to that. I think I've just never wanted to be an expert in anything. I've always like jumped around and moved around quite a lot in the interests that I have and the work that I've done. And so I don't think I've ever consciously put enough time into anything to become the best thing at it. Um, And I like I struggled with that for a little bit because, you know, we're in a, a world full of experts, right? Like all the stories that we tell of the greatest people on earth are all experts at their thing. They are the best at it. Like LeBron James can't do anything else except play basketball, but he's the best basketball player. No one is better than he is. Right. Um, like same with like, you know, I guess like actors that people look up to, like you might see, I don't know, an actor that you really, really admire, but that person, that's what they do. They're, they're an actor. Like, I think like a founder is almost similar and to, to more similar to me than, um, like an expert, I don't think founders are particularly experts. Like I, like we meet a lot of different founders and it's rare. Like we say, we're looking for you to do your life's work. And that's one thing, but we never, we rarely meet people who are just have spent their entire life doing this one pointy end thing. And then they've decided to do a business around it. Most of the founders we meet are generalists, you know, they have more range than that. Um, and I think, you know, after feeling bad about myself for a little while, realizing that I wasn't doing the things that I, that, you know, I wasn't making the music or brewing the beer. I've realized that actually, you know, there's merit in being someone who has a lot of interests and can do a lot of different things. And that's what I've been able to bring to Blackbird is, you know, I have this really diverse and broad like set of knowledge and skills yeah, yeah. that I've acquired over this like odd career that has actually made the work that I do quite valuable. And also, like, just for people who are thinking about this stuff who might be in, you know, the creative world or, you know, might have similar kind of, like, tendencies to me, that is actually, I thought it was a disadvantage in the beginning that I wasn't, like, an expert and I hadn't spent all my life becoming great at one thing. It's actually been my best yeah. advantage. And, you know, that's added the most to my work at Blackbird is that I have this, like, very broad set of interests and you know skills and knowledge set yeah no absolutely look i feel the same i definitely um see some parallels in that in myself um and i've wondered the same question um over time also um we chatted about this uh, prior and this feeds directly into um the sentiment you've just expressed so you know and i i guess the answer is yes but i'd love to know your thoughts on it um you know i've long felt that you know sort of musicians and people from theater backgrounds such as yourselves yourself um people from the arts creative industries will do really well within the um technology ecosystem because there's this constant um rhetoric around uh a need for more talent within within um high growth companies high growth technology companies uh for everything from community engagement through to management roles through to culture um, focused internal culture focused roles. How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about um, whether the pathways exist or, or the the hand is extended, so to speak, to invite people in yeah. to to get involved in that industry? Is it is it too not not so much that it's discriminatory, but uh, um, is the technology ecosystem struggling to extend that hand to invite people in? So you just hit a nerve because this is something that I. So for me, when I was 
when I was looking at transitioning out of music, I didn't know what I could do. I had no idea what even I was like I had, it wasn't just, I didn't know what job I could go and get. It was that I didn't know what I was good at. Cause I'd always just run my own businesses and I had no con like, I just had no, um, you know, I had no like measuring stick for what I was or, or what I was good at. And I came over thinking like, Oh, like I just don't, I started working at Blackbird and I felt really deficient because I'm sitting in these room in this room with like, it was Nikki and Rick and Sam from Blackbird and me at the time. I'm sitting in this room full of like brilliant people who are quite obviously know everything about venture capital and startups. And I didn't know anything. And I was like, what could I possibly, someone from the arts, what could I possibly bring to this? What I've realized over the years that I have, and that all my friends in the arts have is this like, first of all, it's creativity you have more creativity than you realize. And you don't realize it because when you work in music and the arts, everyone has creativity. Sure. It's not a special thing to have a, a mild amount of creativity, which I think I've got like a, a medium amount of creativity, right? But I worked with like crazy artists who are like the most creative people on the planet who are, you know, the bordering on like mental illness, that kind of creative. Yeah. So I came over going, I don't, you know, what do I have? Creativity, that's got no value. Totally wrong about that. Creativity is one of the most valuable things that you can bring to anything that you do. Uh, so that's the first thing. Secondly, like don't underestimate how important a, like a sense of taste and culture is. Um, you know, once again, like I, like I made all the stuff that I make for Blackbird now, like all the branding that you see, the website, like the, you know, the sunrise and the work I've done with that, the approach to community, all of that is, is, you know, where I used to come from is like, it's good work that, it, that many of the people I work with could have done. Um, but over here in finance, no one knows how to do any of this stuff. It's like this super secret magic power that, you know, the people, the colleagues that I have or the people that have come before me think is like some crazy unique thing that I was just born with. But I come from a world where everybody is like this and everyone's like capable of making things in the same way that I have for Blackbird. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge is in translating it. So it is so, and it's, you know, it's a two-sided problem. Translating is, is one part of the responsibility of the person who needs to do the translation but then it's also, a, you know, the problem of the employer and of the person who wants to hire them in that it's super easy to understand if you look at someone's LinkedIn and they went to the right school and they studied commerce and then they worked at, I don't know, an investment bank for a couple of years. And then, you know, that narrative is the person who they're looking to hire doesn't need to tell their story because the narrative is really, really clear. So to hire someone who's creative and who understands culture and art and who can bring those things the person who's doing the hiring has to kind of know what they're looking for. And they have to be able to read beyond, you know, those like really like, to be honest, like surface level and quite like, you know, very, very simple, you know, narrative clues. Yeah. Um, I just got lucky. I, I can't say that I figured out how to do that, but I was lucky that I met Nikki at first. Um, you know, I think that he's the one dude who would have understood me and who saw, you know, a, at least some potential there. Um, but I think now if I had have known how to tell my story differently and if I had have known what my value was, then, you know, it wouldn't have been such a scary and like, it was just like, it was honestly just luck that got me there. Yeah. It was just the right meaning at the right time. But maybe if I had have known how to tell my own story and what my value was and what I was really good at, um, as a creative person, then I wouldn't have had so much, it wouldn't have just been relying on luck. I could have, 
you know, used a little bit more. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you would have had more confidence that the conversation was on more of an equal footing rather than, um, I, I guess you feeling like you were selling yourself to someone like Nikki, um, so to speak, because of, you know, you would have, <laughs> you would have known what all this meant in the, in the larger scheme. And again, we're, we're referencing hindsight as a way of, um, building in that confidence of what you do. Um, I mean, as part of, part of Blackbird, a large part of uh, the part is also to attract eyes to what the, um, the group or the brand is doing and, and brand building is a massive part of that. I'd love to just really quickly reference um, in the creative direction aspect, uh, your collaboration with um, We Buy Your Kids, who I'm, um, I'm sort of a, I'm a huge fan of uh, and was before um, yourself by way of Blackbird have um, started to inject their sort of artistic direction into the brand building. Um, so I got, I got a personal kick out of seeing um, those assets start to be rolled out. Do you want to talk about um, mm. that collab and how that sort of eventuated? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So um, I think the first thing to note is that it was, I could never have come in, I think to Blackbird in the first six months and said, Hey, here's, we're going to rebrand and I'm going to, you know, we're going to set our values and mission and vision and I'm going to lead that. I did all of that stuff eventually, but I think in the beginning it was, you know, a bit of trust building at first. And I think I found that um, I could like, I just couldn't come in out of the gates with, with everything that I wanted to. And so we started off lightly and I got Sonny and Biddy from We Buy Your Kids to do a sunrise poster for us. Um, and so that was, you know, obviously the conference that we run Um and, you know, in the past, the poster and the artwork had just been a photo of Sydney Harbour with Sydney like Sunrise Conference written over the top of it with a little Blackbird logo in the bottom. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any effort put into the creative or into the artistry. Uh, and I thought, you know, coming from music, every tour that you do, you get artwork made. And so, you know, I just thought if I can, you know, just kind of open the door a little bit to an alternative to, you know, the usual kind of conference or startup design and art that you see, if I can open that door a little bit, maybe we'll have a shot at, you know, doing more work with the brand and, and other things too. So started off with Sunrise and um, the original poster for that was even controversial internally. Like we have this joke rick and i um rick's always got a lot of suggestions so rick's one of the founders of blackbird he's always got a lot of suggestions and people think that at blackbird that that's annoying (laughs) for me but it's not i think that his suggestions are always good but one of his initial suggestions was like this poster is too spooky and it's a man we need to make it a woman and we need to make it less spooky because my design brief to you know creative brief to sunny and biddy was like sci-fi weird future um you know kind of try and make it like a science fiction novel you know the the cover yeah yeah anyway so then from there though we were able to the sunrise poster went really really well we had people afterwards say that the sunrise art was like the best art they'd ever seen at a tech conference um like literally we had people tweeting that so i think it was that boost and that kind of affirmation that made it first of all possible that i could start using sunny and biddy for more things Um, But it also kind of locked them in as our, like their style is really distinct, as you know, and it sort of locked them in as our, like, like as our style and as our tone. Um, And so from there, we went on to, took a little bit to get there, but we did a rebrand maybe a year after that. Um, And then, you know, we started using them for everything from our website to our posters to everything I could get out, like I could actually book them for. That's cool. Um, yeah, I, I am a big fan of theirs. So it, it is, uh, and it is a very distinctive um, style. But no, it's cool to hear because I was really um, 
you, you've already addressed it, but I was really keen to hone in on the aspect of, I guess, where you built that, um, you know, the point where they're like, all right, you know, we trust you now, like just go nuts. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I guess, well, yeah. Yeah. It's still, I think for anyone who's like transitioning or wanting to bring a bit of creativity and artistry to a, a world that's maybe not that used to it or that familiar with it, like you just can't, you just got to go bit by bit and you've got to warm them up to it. Like I would say at first, like Rick was the number one like nervous guy about it, but now he's like the number one supporter of, of all the stuff that I get made. So if I, you know, back in the day, if I made something, him, I would go back over 10 rounds over a color choice. And now, you know, I can bring anything to the table that we want to make. And he's just, you know, he just loves it. So I think people, you know, A, need time to warm up, but they also like, here's another secret. People just love exposure to some of this stuff. Like, you know, most people that I work with would never have heard of We Buy Your Kids before. You know, everyone in the music industry and the arts has heard of them, but no one would have heard of them there. And I think they just appreciate, you know, being exposed to stuff like that. Mm, Yeah, for sure. Um. We're gonna we're we're starting to get towards the end of uh, the discussion now. Uh, also, um, and and before we move on from we buy your kids, it's been also really cool. We're talking about sort of digital ass- assets or you know as part of the branding, but um, that's also translated into a physical build for the um for the Blackbird Sydney office. Did you want to talk about that um, sort of new project? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I played a. I've been really interested in culture of Blackbird and that comes down to me having just a really wonderful experience of our culture when we started. Uh, and so I've just always wanted to like do my best to respect and honor that culture that I experienced and to improve it and, you know, hold it up for everyone who's to come, uh, who's going to work at Blackbird. And so a big part of that for me is, uh, like the space, the environment that we work in. So I really think that you can, you know, I think that you can add meaning to people's lives in ways that are unexpected through their work. Um, and I think that, you know, in a world where we're kind of losing so much meaning all the time, when the fabric of society is being ripped apart, when communities are like, you know, getting harder and harder to, to, to build when you know relationships and real meaning in those relationships is is getting more and more challenging to build uh with people around you Mm. i think that you can replace a whole bunch of different stuff uh that we're missing through work and so um one of those things is like environment like how can you build a place that people are proud of they love coming to that's an expression of of the values of a place the values that you know, you identify with as an employee that you're proud to show people. Um, you know, I think if you can create that space, then, you know, the place that everyone has to come into every single day, it's just more meaning and more and, and a, a greater level of riches in their lives mm-hmm. than, than, you know, they otherwise would have had if you just got like a normal office. And so the approach that we took was, um, obviously it's functional. So you need to have, you know, areas where people can work. You've got to have meeting areas and where people can gather for meals and what have you. But I think one of the things we really tried to do was think about the experience that people have when they come in. Uh, so we created this retail space at the beginning. I'm really into gift giving and receiving. So when you come into the Blackbird office, we have this big retail wall that's got 
heaps of products from our portfolio companies, lots of like startup merch and swag, plus a bunch of our own things. We're still building all of that out. But as you come in, the person who greets you has the opportunity to offer you a gift. And so that sets a really nice tone for the start of your meeting with them, being a founder or someone else. Like you can, they can admire the wall that looks really beautiful and then they can look at a product and you can offer that to them. So that's like a really, I think, important ceremonial thing uh, that, you know, people have been giving and receiving gifts, you know, throughout all kind of important moments in, in culture and community for, you know, thousands of years. So I think we tried to create that little thing. And then the other thing we want to do is change the, the power balance a little bit or do what we can to change it. So when founders come to see us, there is really clear power imbalance. And that's that we have money and they want to get that money from us. Mm-hmm. And so also it's our space, like they're coming into our home. Uh, and so that adds like even more of a power imbalance. And so what we try and do, we have this thing called Enlightened Hospitality, which is from Danny Meyer's book called Setting the Table, um, where we just always want to carry with us a sense of hospitality and everyone that we interact with in every place that we go. Uh, and so when you come in to the Blackbird office and you first of all get offered the gift, the person who's hosting you then can then walk you over to this cafe bar that we have set up. It's like a little island. And they direct you to sit down. So you sit down on one side and then the person who's hosting you walks around the other side and starts to offer you drinks or food uh, and they're standing up. So that has the effect of flipping the dynamics. So the person who's hosting you at Blackbird is now serving you. You're our guest. And so that kind of is, is it's meant to be a moment where you feel a comfortable and relaxed because you're invited to sit down instead of going straight into a boardroom and and loading up your PowerPoint, you're actually in a more casual environment. But importantly, it's like being in a restaurant or a cafe where, you know, waiter or waitress comes up to you and serves you and offers you something. It's their job to look after you. Mm. So we tried to create that. So the path that you come in is gift giving and then flipping the dynamic by serving you. And then you were like, if you're pitching, you walked into the boardroom, which is modeled after a nest. So we've got all these twigs and sticks and, things all over the walls and then a whole bunch of um, like framed pictures of our startup. So the metaphor is that, you know, it's the blackbird, it's the nest. We've collected these beautiful things and we're displaying them in our, in our, you know, nest for you. Anyway, so there's like, I could go on for ages. There's a whole bunch of this stuff throughout it, but we use Sunny and Biddy quite heavily uh, in the process. Um, and we also worked with a company called Bold, who are the architects. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I led that build in the, the design brief and all of the, the journey mapping stuff and then worked with them to make it come to life. That's a really cool project, and particularly Prezi. And I guess like, obviously this isn't a COVID um, focused podcast, but it will inevitably come up in the course of discussion and um, yeah, creating an environment that people uh, genuinely feel um, warm about entering, uh, particularly after, I guess, some some of the events that have transpired this year where there's some nervous trepidation mm. about returning to physical spaces is, um, yeah, it feels very prescient, I guess, um, in, in the longer, yeah, well, longer frame of mind. It's been kind of tough because we built all this stuff and moved in in January, February, and then COVID happened. So, like, we've had the same merch sitting in our retail space all year. It's been really tough to get rid of it. I ordered all these shirts and hats and other things as well. Yeah like Blackbird stuff, and we just haven't been able to use it all. So I'm kind of hoping that as we get into the new year and we start hosting people again, we can, you know, bring some of this to life a little bit more than we've been able to. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Joel, we're going to start to wrap it up now. I want to ask you about a couple of things. One is around um, we, we've 
talked directly about it and then danced around it. Um, so the the focus of, or, or I guess the definition of um, sort of community versus audience, um, because it's something that um, I myself would wrestle with <laughs> relatively regularly uh, when running sort of um, particularly in that sort of event and audience, uh, sorry, events or gathering context. Um, and then we'll end also with a bit of a discussion about um, Blackbird Foundation and what's next in that regard. But let's talk about um, how you yeah. feel about the audience and community definition. Um, I think it's, um, you know, I mentioned before about an element of reciprocity in in exchange and then also around this fact that, you know, um, that certain groups may, oh, well, to, to get clear, certain groups may rebrand uh, someone who's a, uh, potentially a receptionist in a large, large office tower and call them a community manager. And that's quite distinct and different from someone who's doing community building within a um, a venture capital company, for for instance. So mm. how do you feel about the definitions and, and what are some, um, some things to hold yeah. on to? Well, the first thing I'll say just on the last point is that I think anyone can learn community. Uh, I think that anyone you know, if they want to, can become a community builder, but it is a distinct profession. Uh, and when I say profession, I mean, you know, we are community professionals. Uh, it's not just the kind of thing you can come into and go, well, I know how to organize an event or I know how to, you know, I'm not trying to gatekeep here. I'm just saying it's like, you know, there are lots of people who do this well, who take it very, very seriously and have made it their life's work. So, you know, if you are hiring for community, that's the first thing I'd say is that, you know, it's not just a role that, you know, you're aiming to, you know, help get someone to organize like your, your staff lunches every other week. It's like actually like a serious thing and you want to give them the time and the space to actually become community builders and to learn how to do it well. Yeah. So that's the first thing I'll say there. Second thing, difference between an audience and a community, like you're definitely right, they are not the same thing. Um, I think audiences can become communities. I think they're the best starting point for a community in a lot of ways. But the main differences to me are that, you know, an audience is more of a broadcast forum. It's kind of like one to many. So if you think we'll just use the music as an example, the bands that I manage had heaps of like fans. They had a large audience of people. Now they push things down to the fans. Very often than not though, they don't, you know, they don't get a lot of, you know, they don't have engage in like a direct dialogue with the fans. And if they do, it's very one-to-one. Um, a community would feel more like if the band and the fans all were in the same space and they were all talking to each other at the same time, uh, if that makes sense. Whereas band sits on a stage and plays to an audience of people and the audience experience it together, but it's not a, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, so that to me is the definition. Do you agree? I agree. I agree. I do. Um, it's not a sort of a necessarily controversial opinion I hold. It's just something I, um, I, I enjoy continually thinking about and thinking about mm. not not that I need to tag it with a definition, but just something that I like to wrestle with in my mind. Because when you're when you're sort of mm. doing, um, if you're doing something relatively public facing, and so um, you know it, you're you're gathering people, whether in an online context or an in person context, and and if you're looking to imbue those um, community sort of vibes, uh, it's just something for mm. for. Um, as a consideration continuously, mm. because uh, as one aspect of it, I want to continually enhance the experience. And so I would do that more with a community focus in mind, as opposed to an audience in mind, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, a community is just, all the communities guys is just a group of people that have like a shared identity 
in some way and they have they come together over a com you know with a common purpose in mind that's all it is like it's not super complex but what you can do is if you have an audience you have a, a group of fans you can take a bunch of those people and turn them into a community um and so like what's a really great way let's say you you uh, run a gardening shop and i'm using this example because i just spoke at a regional business development thing and there was a gardener in the audience let's say you sell gardening equipment um you have a facebook page where you update people on the products and services that you have um that's fine. That's an audience to me. Like you can promote to those people. You can tell them what you're doing and they can come in and buy stuff. But you might then say to yourself, well, I want deeper engagement from these people and I want them to become advocates for my business. So I'm going to find the out of these like 200 people I have here, I'm going to find the 20 or 30 who really love the most what I'm doing and who come in all the time. And I'm going to sit down with them. And I'm going to say, what do you guys want to do? Like, let's, should we start meeting up together? What would you want to achieve out of that? Uh, and it could be simple things like, you know, they just a want to meet more gardeners and spend time with them because they have an identity as a gardener and they want to share that identity with other people who are also gardeners. They might want to become better gardeners. You know, they might want to get access to seeds and things that they don't usually get access to. They want to get cuttings from people in the community so that they can, you know, share the plants and the flowers that they're growing. So a community then, and then as a leader of that community, you build content and programming to facilitate all of that stuff. And so yeah. you might have a community within your audience, but like the, the function is very different. One of them you can promote to them and send the messages and they can see what you're doing. The other people you're creating meaning and value, giving them shared purpose. You're adding more to their life than they would have gotten from just being an audience member on your Facebook group. Love it. Perfect. I think you, I think you express it really well. And so, um, no, I appreciate it. And something to continually talk through and, um, and, and seek to understand, isn't it? Um, as we like try these new projects and things with, uh, those sort of intentions in mind. Yeah, um, totally. Look, let, let's, let's end on this last aspect. Um, because whilst it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, I don't want to take up your entire day. Let's talk about Blackbird Foundation. You mentioned it very briefly before. So um, in, an, uh, in a purposeful context, what are you doing with Blackbird Foundation um, wholly by definition? And then uh, what do you foresee as the next sort of natural steps um, mm. in that endeavor? Sure. So Blackbird Foundation, like I mentioned, it's the philanthropic arm of Blackbird Ventures. Uh, our mission is to unleash creativity in as many young people as we possibly can. And the basic idea is that we think creativity is the beginning of everything meaningful that human beings have ever been able to do. Uh, and we think that currently the way our young people are raised, um, the system that they go through is linear, it's narrow, it's very like the path is set out for them very concretely. And we think that this is, uh, it, it diminishes creativity or it, it suffocates it in a person. We think that everyone's creative and we want to do what we can to make sure that creativity doesn't get suffocated out. Um, we think that the best, the best people of, at anything in the world are all creative. Like the best engineers are creative. The best doctors are creative. The best artists and photographers and painters are all creative. Uh, and I will honestly, we believe that if, if we can just raise even a percentage more of people, uh, coming up to be a bit more creative, then we've got a shot at, you know, solving some of these really giant complex challenges that are bearing down upon us. Um, you know, and especially as well, like I hate using these phrases, but people, 
you know, our young people are heading to an, into a world that is going to require them to be creative. It's changing really, really quickly. They're going to lead, need to be learning their whole life. Like in, we don't live in a world anymore where you can just learn one thing and that's okay. Like you can do that same thing for the rest of your life. Young people are going to need to be learning throughout their entire life because the world changes at such a fast pace now and will continue to change at an even quicker pace. And so we need to equip them for that. Um, and then how great would it be if in the world we have more people just building and creating more meaningful things? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's really cool. So you've, you've run sort of an application process, is it, for groups to get involved? Yeah, so the mechanics of it are that we're a funder. So we are funding organizations who are doing this work. Um, the plan is eventually to run our own programs and to do our own work. But what we're doing right now is we're looking for organizations that are supercharging or unleashing creativity and we'll give them money. Uh, so I'm kind of at a point at the moment where we've seen, I think 120 people have come through, 130 maybe people have come through to me who are pitching and we've had about 12 come in to pitch us directly. And then from that, I'm going to choose a couple to fund, but we're going to have more money in the bank, um, you know, to fund people over the next six months as well. And that money replenishes every year. So we, we've committed a certain amount annually um, through our commitment to the pledge 1%. And then that amount refreshes every year. That's cool. Uh, that's a, that's a really cool project to get um, mixed up in. Oh, and particularly to lead. So um yeah, well done, man. I'm, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> Me too. I really believe it. And you, God, you should see some of the people in media, yeah, man. Like, there are people doing yeah. this work that are just out of control, clever. They, like, they believe in the future and, you know, they're all trying to do really like important and incredible work that will help make, you know, the future better for young people. And it's just been so inspiring to meet them all. It's going to be really cool. I reckon five years from now, let's, let's, let's call it Christmas 2025 for you to sort of look back and then uh, as you've done sort of charted your path and sort of seeing that everything sort of made sense, you know, what, what you're sort of doing at that time and whether this was a momentous step for, for what you were doing at that time, if that <laughs> it's not too meta. Um, yeah. But it's going to be really well, interesting. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. Yeah, I really hope so. I think, I think that this, I don't know what my life's work will be, but I'm think, I think that this could be it. Um, <laughs> since I, I, you know, I mentioned before that I'm a generalist and, you know, so it's always hard to wrap your life around or wrap your mind around doing one thing yeah. and that only that one thing throughout your whole life. But I genuinely hope that through the foundation, we can have a meaningful impact on, you know, young kids coming up in Australia and, you know, give them a shot at, like I said, like solving some of the big problems that are coming down on us, but also like, just leading meaning and fulfilling lives, meaningful and fulfilling lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the industry, they call it being a multi-potentialite. So, um, you know, you, you've got it in spades. <laughs> Joel, um, <laughs> hey, I want to I wanna thank you so much for joining the chat. Uh, you were actually, um, whilst it's been a long one, um, you were, I think you were one of the very first names that I, that I marked down, specifically, like I mentioned at the start of the chat, based on, you know, what you've been doing and quite open about, you um, you know, your sort of non-traditional career path into what you were doing. So um, it feels apt that we've chatted longer and it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And I, like I said in the beginning, I genuinely mean it. I'm a big fan of yours and all the work you do. So thank you for putting the effort into this show. And I've listened to a whole bunch of the episodes and all these people I had no idea about have, have you know, come to my attention. So thank you as well. Oh, my pleasure, man. Well, look, again, can't wait for the first beer and, um, yeah, inevitably it will happen pretty soon. But 
all the best. Look after the family <laughs> cool. and um and take care. Then. Thank you, guys. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye. Well, that was my chat with uh, Joel Connolly for episode 16 of the Lot to Say podcast. Look, it was a longer one, so I'll keep this super brief, but it was an absolute pleasure to have Joel involved. And, um, you know, I'm really appreciative of his time. Uh, you can find out more about um, Blackbird and Blackbird Foundation specifically on Instagram um, at BlackbirdVC or at Blackbird.Foundation. And through Twitter, it would be at Foundation by BB or at BlackbirdVC. Um, check him out. So my name is Gary Williams or Gaz, as people call me. Music in the podcast is by my, my band Bateman. You can find us on Bandcamp and uh, social media channels for Alts Projects is at Alts Projects. Who'd have thunk it? Thanks very much for joining. Catch you on the next episode and cheers. Cheers.